The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. Think about diagnosis, the testing that we can do to have a diagnosis. So I usually do a GAD65, which is an antibody, which is sensitive and specific for type 1 diabetes. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from the March 2022 in the clinic section of the Annals titled Type 1 Diabetes. Joining us on the podcast is the first author, Fatima Syed, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Duke where she practices as a general internist. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Fatima, thank you so much for joining us on the uh, podcast. As adult physicians, we see so much type 2 diabetes, but type 1 diabetes, most of us who are internists and not endocrinologists just don't see a lot of it. Yet it's really important. Sometimes we're responsible for making that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I know I've made that diagnosis in hospitalized patients sometimes. What I wanted to do is start by just letting you contrast type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Absolutely. So I think just sort of to start the importance of as internists and particularly as outpatient internists for us to have an interest and knowledge of type 1 diabetes is really important because we are often the main touch point for our patients in their general health. So I think it's really important that we, you know, seek out all, all of this knowledge. So the difference between type 1 versus type 2 diabetes, I think of it sort of from a, you know, going back to med school and a pathophysiology level. Type 2 diabetes, let's start there, is a disease of insulin resistance. Our cells are not good at taking up insulin and our cells need glucose and insulin helps deliver glucose. So when we have decreased insulin sensitivity, increased insulin resistance, the glucose doesn't go where it's supposed to be. It hangs out where it's not supposed to be, and it creates oxidative damage. So I think of type 2 diabetes as a disease of insulin resistance. I think of type 1 diabetes as a disease of insulin destruction, uh, insulin deficiency. So a completely different mechanism. We use diabetes mellitus as the Latin for what all of this means is siphoning, right? You have too much glucose and you siphon it all out in your urine. So the end effects may be similar, but the mechanisms are very, very different. And it's really important to recognize the difference because treatment is so different. So, you know, traditionally we expect someone with type 2 diabetes to maybe have more central obesity, to have family history, to have sort of like a subtle worsening of their A1C. And in type 1 diabetes, we usually see a much more sudden onset. So the clinical presentation is different and the treatment is very different. Type 2 diabetes, we have a lot in our wheelhouse outside of insulin to treat, right? We've got medications to lower insulin resistance. We've got newer agents like 
SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP1s, but for type 1 diabetes, we need to know what to how to treat because we need to know that we have to start insulin on that patient. So um, it's really important to know the difference between the two. More often than not, the differences are pretty clear, but sometimes you might see something a little bit subtle. You might see a patient who maybe has a little bit more of a gradual onset and, you know, they're getting worse despite traditional interventions for type 2 and maybe they've gone into DKA. And those are the ones where I think especially the diagnosis always comes from the primary care doc usually, right? And or, or from the hospital that's admitting the patient. So that's why the differences are so important because treatment is so different. For years, people thought of type 1 as juvenile diabetes Mm -hmm, and type mm -hmm. 2 as adult diabetes. Uh, Those lines are being blurred now because we get more and more adolescents who have type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. How common is the onset of type 1 diabetes in adults? Type 1 diabetes is more commonly seen in younger patients. And by younger, I mean 19 and under. But um, it's not uncommon in, um, uh, in adults either. If the clinical suspicion is high enough, I would definitely recommend checking for antibodies and treating someone who's an adult with type 1 diabetes. One thing that I talk about in the paper briefly is late onset diabetes of adulthood uh, or LADA. And LADA basically is autoimmune destruction of the pancreas. It's type 1 diabetes, but it presents in adulthood. And there's something about perhaps pancreatic memory or something where insulin requirements are not as much as with type 1 diabetes. For example, someone might be doing just fine with basal insulin for a, for a little bit before they need mealtime insulin, or they have uh, don't need as much mealtime insulin as we would expect for type 1 diabetes in presenting in, in childhood. So the mechanism of the diseases are very similar. So I would effectively consider both of them to be type 1 because the mechanism and the treatment is the same. But if it presents in adulthood and presents as LADA, you may not need as much insulin requirements early on. In primary care, patient comes to you, what are, and and you get back a glucose of 400 or 500 Mm -hmm. or 300. What in the history encourages you to start doing a workup and consider type 1 versus type 2? That's a great question, because I think we've all seen blood sugars in the three, four hundreds, five hundreds in some of our type two diabetes patients as well. And even though we say that, you know, type two diabetes patients uh, are less likely to get DKA, you know, those of us in hospital medicine or in residencies have all treated DKA and type two diabetes. So things get kind of blurry there. But in terms of the diagnostic criteria. If you're seeing someone who has been losing weight, has polyuria, has polydipsia, and does not fit the physical sort of description of type 2 diabetes very well, meaning they're thin, they don't have central obesity, they don't necessarily have a family history of diabetes, those are the people you're thinking about type 1. So I really like what you just said. Another phrase for that is, what is the illness script for type 2 diabetes, and if they don't fit that illness script. And let me just repeat and see if I have this right. People with type 2 diabetes usually are not losing weight. Mm -hmm. They're often have BMIs of 30 or above. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They very often have a family history. I think that even though there's genetics in both type 1 and type Mm -hmm. 2, it's much Mm -hmm. stronger in type 2. It's usually more of a gradual onset uh, disease. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that sums it up really well. 
Yeah, and I think that the thing about that, when someone comes in with new high glucose and they don't match that illness script, that's when you start thinking about, could there be something else? So let's say exactly. we have somebody comes into to, to the office like that. Mm-hmm. How do you work them up? I think there's, there's the workup and then there's the treatment is almost just as important. So if someone's coming in regardless of type 1 or type 2 diabetes with blood sugars in the 3-400s, very likely that matches to an A1C that's over 9 and that that person probably would benefit from at least a little bit of basal insulin. Before you're thinking of what this is, regardless, this person whether insulin sensitivity issues or insulin resistance issues or insulin destruction issues, needs help getting their sugars lower. So I would think about it first in that lens. And then if you're thinking about things in terms of is there type 1 diabetes versus type type 2 um, diabetes, think about diagnosis and testing that we can do to, to have a diagnosis. So I usually do a GAD65, which is an antibody, which is, is um, sensitive and specific for type 1 diabetes. You can also do a zinc uh, transporterase, which is another lab. You can check a C-peptide level as well. Um, and testing for C-peptides can confirm the diagnosis about whether or not the pancreas is making insulin. Typically, the levels are going to be low in type 1 diabetes. So I would really think about GAD, a zinc a transporterase, and a C-peptide as the labs that I would want to test. And these are labs that you can do that the primary care physician can do easily. Let's go over those more carefully. For those of us who are older and didn't learn this back in medical school, I want to make sure we have this straight. So C-peptide is part of the development of insulin. It's insulin is chopped off of C-peptide, I guess. Exactly. If you're not making insulin, that means you're not making C-peptide, so you'll have low levels of C-peptide. Exactly. The GAD, which is GAD65, is that right? Exactly. Glutamic acid decarboxylase 65. We talk about that one the most. Mm -hmm. And that's an antibody that is often the antibody that leads to type one. So an elevated GAD 65 would make us think that it's more of a type one type diabetes, whether it's LADA or type one, you still could have GAD 65. Exactly. Is the zinc trans, so I'm not as familiar with the zinc trans. Sure. So a zinc transporter eight is basically related to insulin secretion. And so if that level is um, elevated, that's an antibody similarly to GAD65, which um, uh, helps, uh, has, has pretty good sensitivity and specificity for type one diabetes. Okay. So patient comes in, they, they're losing weight. They have polyuria. Mm-hmm. I don't want to confuse whether they have type one or type two, because if they have a type one, I need to start them on insulin right away. Mm-hmm, they have mm-hmm. type two, I'm pulling out SGLT2s and metformin mm-hmm, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the fundamentals of diagnosis. So let's say we diagnose type one. What are the current principles of treating type one diabetes if you're a primary care physician? I'm going to speak first of sort of what to do as a primary care physician and then when to ask for help from an endocrinologist. So at diagnosis, if your clinical suspicion, even before labs come back, is high enough that this person has type 1 diabetes, then you're thinking about the pathophysiology, which is the destruction of beta cells in the pancreas and no insulin. So then you need to give basal and bolus insulin to that patient. Um, I usually take a weight-based approach regimen when starting out insulin. I usually do 0.3 units per kilogram of that patient's body weight. Divide that in half. Half is going to be basal and half is, and and the the rest is going to be divided with meals as a bolus. So I would start that 
basically immediately. Then you wanna make sure your patient has education because this is a profound diagnosis, not just for patients, but for their family members. So I would want to plug them into diabetes education. And I would plug that patient in with endocrine as well, because as an internist, you can probably manage insulin regimens very easily. However, sometimes there's a lot of support needed um, outside of the clinician, right? There's diabetes educators, there's CGMs, which are continuous glucose meters, there's insulin pumps. There are a lot of options for treatment that are very convenient for a patient's life and very helpful as well in A1C reduction. So I would start with basal bolus insulin. I would get that person plugged into education and I would very quickly refer that patient to endocrinology. So I don't know if you saw this, but just this week, the British guideline committee, NICE, has recommended that everyone with type 1 diabetes should have access to continuous glucose monitoring. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a podcast on this back in 2019, if someone wants to go listen to it. Is that one of the advantages of having an endocrinology consult? Because they've seen more patients than we're likely yeah. to be uh, in primary care. I mean, I would encourage primary care to be comfortable with using CGMs also because they're also useful in type 2 diabetes as well. I know personally at where I work at in, in Duke Primary Care, we're piloting CGM in primary care offices right now. However, yes, I think an endocrinologist has more resources and familiarity with CGMs, but that doesn't mean that you can't prescribe it as a primary care doctor immediately and get the data, right? We're all educated in blood glucose and we can all sort of interpret things. And more importantly, the CGM is really for the patient to be able to understand trends of blood sugar, prevent highs and prevent lows. And so, you know, that alone isn't the reason for endocrine. I think the other reason is really the access to an insulin pump. That requires, I think, especially in starting out dosing and that sort of thing, that is made beneficial by an endocrinologist's knowledge base a little bit more. There are plenty of PCPs out there um, in family and internal medicine who uh, manage type 1 diabetes entirely on their own mainly because access to endocrine is, is challenging, right? And if you feel comfortable doing so, I think that's, that's okay. But in general, if you have access to endocrine, I would recommend it. I think as internists, we really only refer when we need it, right? If we can manage things on our own, we typically have the knowledge base to do so. But from an access point and a resource point, I generally like to make sure patients with type 1 diabetes are plugged into endocrine. Well, one of the nice things about CGM, and we discussed this on the podcast back in 2019, is there really good data that show that CGM in and of itself decreases hemoglobin A1C by at least a half a point? Are there similar data for pumps, do you know? Insulin pumps, I believe, do have similar data that there's more, there's more control and more prevention of, more importantly, more prevention of hypoglycemic episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and they're just super convenient, right? <laughs> they're very, very convenient for patients. And CGM is really a great protection against uh, hypoglycemia. Absolutely, absolutely. I often say that I worry about hypoglycemic episodes more than hyperglycemic episodes because they make you feel so terrible. And also it's a big risk, right, for, for mm -hmm. something more serious happening to the patient. So for me, I'm more interested in preventing hypoglycemic episodes. So let's finish this up with, we've talked a lot about primary care, but people with type 1 diabetes end up in the hospital. From the discussions that we've had, what are the implications for hospitalists of 
understanding how we should be taking care of type 1 diabetics. And many of these will be people who develop type 1 diabetes in childhood. Mm -hmm. Others will be ones who developed it as adults. First thing is obviously if someone is being admitted for DKA, then we treat with an insulin infusion. And I think all folks in hospital medicine are very familiar with that. But if someone's being hospitalized for other reasons, I always tell folks, no one, no one knows their diabetes better than someone with type one diabetes. They know their blood sugars, they know what works for them and they know what doesn't work for them. And I often see in hospital medicine is that it's very overwhelming, the basal bolus regimen. And you might be inclined to want a patient to fit into the insulin schedules that are protocols within the hospitals. And I would encourage you not to do that. Keep regimens as similar as possible. If someone is NPO, continue the long acting insulin, don't discontinue everything, um, but try to follow the home regimen as much as possible and let the patient have autonomy to, if they know how to carb count and they know how to dose their short acting insulin, let them because they know what they're doing. So definitely trust your patient is the thing that I would recommend the most. Would you also encourage us to allow them to continue their continuous glucose monitoring and their insulin pump rather than have the nurses come by and stick them first for the glucose and then to give them the insulin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think, well, otherwise we're all chasing our tails and you have all that data in front of you and you know, you, you can with the CGM and the patient knows what they're doing. So I would encourage you to let your patient continue taking ownership of their blood sugars, um, get the trends. That's fine, but don't have your patient conform to whatever protocol is typical in the hospital. Well, thank you so much for writing the article, which I highly recommend everyone read. It's a really good in-the-clinic article that is relevant both to inpatient and outpatient physicians, and uh, appreciate you explaining all this in a way that hopefully not just me, but also the rest of the listeners will have learned something. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's a, an important topic, and I appreciate you bringing me on. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This podcast covered a lot of issues in type 1 diabetes. I'd like to focus on two. The first is the diagnosis. And in our discussion, there are three tests that you might consider ordering. Uh, GAD-65, which is an antibody that occurs in many patients who have type 1 diabetes. Zinc transporter antibodies. And C-peptide, which is cleaved from insulin and when absent, certainly points towards type 1 diabetes. Second, the value of an endocrinologist. There are a lot of values, but in particular, patients with type 1 diabetes should be on continuous glucose monitoring and eventually probably should be on insulin pumps. Endocrinologists tend to be much more comfortable with that than most of us internists, and that can be very valuable in creating better control for the patient and a better quality of life for the patient. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. 
The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.